Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like brooms, red and lard. Now, Mm. Sam, red would be the colour red, because this very Christmas I purchased for my good wife uh, James Fox's Cultural History of Colour, and she said it is absolutely amazing. It's got lots of chapters on different colours. I think we should do blue. Yes, or that, we that should do we should do laces, traces, and staircases. Somebody suggested <laughs> staircases to us. Maces, faces, and places. And and with places, I'm thinking about the geographical phenomenon rather than the white flat fish. Delicious though, <laughs> places. But we are digressing as always because what we should really be doing and what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in extraordinarily unexpected ways who knew for example who knew that the history of dolls is in fact all about 17th and 18th century fashions the history of the barbie doll it's about 20th century consumerism and patriarchy lord and lady clapham and the victorian albert museum and victorian automatons who knew also who knew that the history of birds yes birds those tweety fluttery feathery things is in fact all about the battle of waterloo and plumed helmets it's about costume feathers hats and the American Ornithologists' Union. It's about cruelty to birds. It's also about canary resuscitators and John Scott Haldane and the use of canaries down mines. And also, it's about trenches in World War One. Mm. I do enjoy doing episodes about animals. We mm. did a good one on sharks. We should do some more. Uh, anyway. Um... Dogs. Dogs, I think. Dogs? Mm. Okay, Uh, You're all probably wondering who's telling you this information. Let me just say, my fellow presenter, that if history was a dream, this man would be the dreamer, snoozing softly in his performance power pyjamas of the past, nestling under his duvet of research, perhaps drooling slightly with his intellectual saliva. He is the pyjama-clad investigator of history itself, the leading academic dream warrior of them all. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I love being the. I love the idea of being a a dream warrior. 
of mm. history. I think that sounds great. Well, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a pyjama-related historian, <laughs> he'd be the equivalent, the historical equivalent of a very debonair and impeccably turned out pyjama scholar, relaxed and laid back in his domestic abode, perusing learned tomes, elegantly personified in the ways in which he lounges with the past. No naked historian is he. No flim-flam Jamie Oliver equivalent <laughs> of the historical world. He's Michelin-starred all the way. The man is at his ease in Paisley as he is in silk. The best-dressed, nocturnally blessed historian. I love the way that rhymes. <laughs> that I've had the good fortune to meet. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. The best-dressed, nocturnally blessed historian. I, I was very, triumph. very pleased with that. Yes, I should have been a poet rather than a historian, I think. <laughs> no, always time to change. Um, yes, that was I, wonderful. Yes. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, we are doing pyjamas, which I'm quite excited about. It's um, it's suitably ludicrous to fit very well into histories of the unexpected. It is. And Jamie, Jamie, uh, our brilliant producer, wizard, um, always got very excited when we, we told him that we were doing pyjamas as well. He thought that was <laughs> splendid. Now, I... The reason I think we... I don't know why we came across this. Yes, I do know why we came mm. across this. Um, it was one of your introductions and it rhymed with Bahamas. Yes, but it was also <laughs> it was also because of Christmas pyjamas and the tradition of Christmas pyjamas. Uh, is that something in the, in the Willis household, family p- Christmas pyjamas? Do you know what it is? And I think ah. I've picked it up from you. I'm sure now, you did. Now, I'm sure you now did. Now you mention it. Um, we, but we, we give our kids pyjamas on Christmas Eve. Yes, we do as well. Uh, and do you wear p- pyjamas yourselves? Uh, no. Oh, well, we, that's not family Christmas pyjamas. That's children's yeah. Christmas pyjamas. We do, right. we do Daybell uh, I, family I sleep in armour, James. My suit, my, suit, my suit of armour. Very good. Get out on Christmas Eve. Very good. But there is a whole history of holiday pyjamas, like Christmas yeah. pyjamas that you can trace back to the 1950s in America. No, 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 absolutely. (laughs) I was squirrelling around on the internet and came across a 1958 Sears catalogue for candle lighters pyjamas. And there's a whole family decked out in sort of wee-willy-winky pyjamas, including a father holding a sort of screaming child in a little baby Christmas romper suit. Um, a bit like the family von Trapp. So it is a thing, and it, it and it it's dated to the the fifties and that sort of extraordinary consumerist explosion. So that was what got me mm. started on this. But I'm going to be talking about the the prehistory of the pajama because <laughs> the pajama for me is actually it's actually a very relatively modern phenomenon. It started in the in South Asia, started in places like India, Persia, and and then through empire uh, was picked up and came across. Uh, but if you look at the dictionary, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary, um, mm-hmm. as I as I do, and it's a brilliant place to start for, you know, thinking about the historical derivation of words. And the first definition of it is originally loose trousers, usually of cotton or silk, silk or cotton, tied round the waist and worn by both sexes in some Asian and Middle Eastern countries. Subsequently, also nightclothes consisting of loose trousers or shorts and a jacket or top, now the principal use, also occasionally in singular 
the loose trousers were adopted by Europeans living in eastern countries, especially for nightwear, and the word came to be applied outside Asia originally in trade use to help sl to, to a sleeping suit of loose trousers and jacket. And the first recorded printed reference to it is 1801, <laughs> Asiatic and regulations. Uh, memoranda relative to Tipu Sultan's wardrobe, 3D pajamas or drawers. Hmm. Yes. I love that. Um, it's interesting there, pajamas, P-A-J-A-M-A, -A -A. is that how it's spelled in the Oxford English Dictionary with, a, with an A? That is how, paja no, pajamas is spelt, um, yes, it, yeah, it's spelt P-Y-J-A-M-A-S, but also P-A-J-A-M-A-S. Hmm. Um, that's interesting because I was um, uh, just searching through um, a few databases of historical things to see what came up. And I initially searched pyjamas with a Y and a few things came up. Then I searched pajamas and loads more came up. Mm. Um, so yeah, interesting spelling of it. But um, I like what you say about the um, imperialist side of it, because that's certainly something that I've come across, which I thought was fascinating. So uh, you can actually argue that pyjamas are all about imperialism and also diversity, which I thought was interesting because you, you kind of glossed over it there. But yes, you've got pyjamas coming into the English language via Bengali. So it all happened during the Raj. And um, you, you can't really think about the history of pyjamas without thinking about the history of the English in India. And I thought one of the interesting things about it is that it was recorded at the time as being a uniform. Um, it was actually the word it was used. It was a uniform of both the Indian gentry and peasants, which I thought was really weird, that they're actually they're wearing the same clothes and surely unique. Um, though I suspect that the gentry had some very fancy silk pyjamas and the peasants didn't. Um, and what was being identified here is a, is a loose fitting style of trouser. But also the wearing of these pyjamas transcended uh, sex. So it was it was they were worn by both men and women. So it's quite a really interestingly um, contemporary subject for us. It, um, it, it It's a weird mixture of things we we love so diversity and, and um, men and women wearing the same clothes whatever it might be sort of inclusivity but also something that we currently hate which is the history of empire or um, everything that was imperial so I think it's a fascinating subject um, the imperial side of it I I've found a really interesting different aspect to it and um, it's all revealed through a fairly extraordinary history of my fate, I, I was going to say he's one of my favourite authors, but I think I'm going to say it now that he is my favourite author, Robert Ooh. Louis Stevenson. Oh. So, so for those of you who don't know who Robert Louis Stevenson is, he wrote Treasure Island. Um, and uh, among other things, he also wrote uh, Jekyll, um, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And if, if you are new to reading um, uh, fiction written in the past, you can do no better than reading Robert Louis Stevenson. So let me take you through Robert Louis Stevenson. I, I came across a really amazing article called Stevenson's Pyjamas. And I thought, do you know what? I've definitely got to read this. It was published in Victorian Literature and Culture in 2002. And it's one of the best articles that I've ever read in about history. Um, it all starts because um, a historian discovered um, in Robert Louis Stevenson's papers in the um, library at Yale... Uh, a tailor's bill and that bill lists a variety of items like one pair of white uh, trousers and some uh, a Bedford cord riding trousers but it also notes that he was wearing or he had three pairs of 
pyjamas. And what's really interesting about this extra thing is that it was made um, with uh, the address was R. L. Stevenson, Samoa. <laughs> I didn't know that Stevenson spent a huge amount of his life in Samoa. He didn't just spend a lot of his life in Samoa. He um, uh, he wrote books while he was there. And um, it's enormously revealing about his history. So he actually travelled around the South Seas. I suppose in the late 1880s. Um, basically sort of wanders the South Seas for, for three years or so. Um, goes to Hawaii, goes to Tahiti, goes to New Zealand. Then he gets to Samoa and then he stays in Samoa. He settles in Samoa and that's in 1889. He's not just there on his own. He's there with his extended family. Um, and they buy... Um, a huge amount of land, 314 acres, and they 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 build uh, the first two-storey house on the island, um, James. Which made me think about the history of height. We said we were going to do that recently, and also staircases, so mm. we could we could fit uh, Stevenson into it. Anyway, what's going on here is that Stevenson, uh, he. It, it's really it's really interesting the way that people write about Stevenson arriving on the island all right and so the the main people who are writing and kind of keeping keeping diaries written in english they're missionaries and they dress in a very specific um conservative way and what they're trying to do is to uh, identify themselves as being of, of a part of a of a superior culture. They're trying to to mark themselves out uh, from the native Samoans and the way that they dress. Anyway, along comes Stevenson, right? And he is not dressed in the way that these um, very very kind of hyper religious Orthodox conservative Christians expect an Englishman or a Scotsman, so someone from uh, for, from uh, the British Isles, to dress. So in his diary, the Reverend J.E. Newell says that Stevenson and his family arrive the most extraordinary, unconventional costumes. I would say they were bohemian, but if you would not misunderstand the term, the most bohemian that was ever seen. And then Reverend Clark, this is another missionary, he actually goes on to have a good relationship with Stevenson, says that, uh, <laughs> this is his description, this is fantastic. I met a little group of three European strangers, two men and a woman. The latter wore a print gown, large gold crescent earrings, a Gilbert Island hat of plaited straw, encircled with a wreath of small shells, a scarlet silk scarf round her neck and a brilliant plaid shawl across her shoulders. Her bare feet were encased in white canvas shoes and across her back was slung a guitar. The younger of her two companions was dressed in a striped pyjama suit. This is Stevenson. The undress costume of most European traders in these seas, a slouch straw hat of naked make dark blue sun spectacles and over his shoulder a banjo. The other man was dressed in a shabby suit of white flannels that had seen many better days, a white drill yachting cap with a prominent peak, a cigarette in his mouth and a photographic camera in his hand. Both the men were barefooted. They had evidently just landed from the little schooner now lying placidly at anchor and my first thought was that probably they were wandering players en route to New Zealand, compelled by their poverty to take the cheap conveyance of a trading vessel. And these are just not the only uh, descriptions. There are all sorts of other references to the Stevenson family's uncleanliness, their shabbiness, their dishevelled hair and their curious clothes with always regular particular focus on their pyjamas. 
Um, this is another one here. Uh, as we reached the steps, a figure came out that I cannot do justice to. Imagine a man so thin and emaciated that he looked like a bundle of sticks in a bag, with a head and eyes morbidly intelligent and restless. He was costumed in very dirty striped cotton pyjamas, the baggy legs tucked into coarse knit woollen stockings, one of which was bright brown in colour, the other a purplish dark tone. Uh, this goes on, lots of people describing and discussing what on earth was going on, and it reveals a great deal about Stevenson and the way he didn't want to um, to dress the same as other Europeans in Samoa. He wanted to mark himself as being different, and it really makes you think about uh, the, the clothing practices that went with the traditional, um, the dominant Western narrative of how you were expected to appear and this led to a lot of people describing this is curious describing Stevenson as going native that was the description of it even though he wasn't dressing like a native Samoan he was dressing in his own very curious way um, wearing these striped pajamas but it's a, it's a wonderful example James of how pajamas actually um, uh, could be used to delineate you, to mark you out, or mark out people who were civilized and people who were uncivilized. Fascinating stuff. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Brilliant stuff, Sam. Absolutely brilliant. Mm. Uh, it draws to mind or my memory a bizarre uh, episode that I heard the other day on Radio 4 about Lord Leverhulme, William Hesketh, uh, who's a sort of rather sort of bizarre maverick character um, who lived between 1851 to 1925. And I don't know whether you know much about his bedrooms. It's not about pyjamas, but this was a man who believed in sleeping in the open air so in all of his houses he would have a bedroom um, built right at the top that was exposed to the elements like literally he would sleep in fresh air uh, whatever the weather uh, and it would, it would rain it would snow on him and he had special 
sort of um, drains put in the floors <laughs> to basically drain away the rainwater. And his wife uh, joined him uh, and slept in this way, uh, but I think died of hypothermia. Uh, and and then having, uh, you know, having basically effectively killed her uh, through his sleeping habits, um, he continued sleeping like this for more than a decade and then himself succumbed to pneumonia through <laughs> sleeping in, yeah. in such a way. So absolutely yeah. extraordinary. But I didn't want to talk about that at all. What I wanted to talk about was the prehistory of the pyjama, because as we said, this is a relatively... The, the, the terminology and the, that bedwear is a relatively um, modern phenomenon. And I was reading the excellent Sleep in Early Modern England by the wonderful Sasha Handley, uh, who's at Manchester. It's an extraordinary book. I've read this a couple of times now for various things, and it's so useful, so rich. And there's a lovely little section called Dressing for Bed, where she talks about the rise of clothes specifically for for bed um and she's draws on the work of a victorian albert museum uh curator of of fashion and textiles a woman called susan north equally brilliant uh who basically argues that it's in the 17th century that we really get the rise of clothing that is distinctly and solely for wearing at night and before that people would have basically worn um, clothing that during the day and would have kept it on at night you know usually usually shirts but what's interesting is in Sasha's discussions here one of the things she starts with is actually how do we start reconstructing the history of nightwear how do we know about it occasionally there are examples of these garments that survive so we might have night hats that survive although the problem with night hats is that night hats might just be worn in the evening rather than for bed we maybe have night dresses that survive or night shirts that survive and these tend to be from the 18th century where we get a lot of evidence is around it's around medical writers writing about what you should wear in bed that is connected to medicine and humours and your health. So actually keeping wrapped up and keeping warm in the cold night air is something that they were very concerned with. Equally being over hot is something that they're really concerned with. The other thing that we have, of course, is all sorts of listings or inventories or household accounts that record the buying of clothing and so in the, particularly in the 17th century you you see quite a lot of references to people buying what are uniquely clothes for wearing at night but one of the most extraordinary visual depictions that we have comes from a volume by Richard Braithwaite published in London in 1640 uh, which is entitled Art a Sleep Husband, a bolster lecture stored with all variety of witty jests, merry tales and other pleasant passages extracted from the choicest flowers of philosophy, poesy, ancient and modern history. In other words, it's a volume that is full of anecdotes about how wives should behave and how wives basically complain at their husband about their husbands and to their husbands and hector their husbands but what's interesting 
is if you Google up a bolster lecture, Richard Braithwaite, so pause this podcast for the moment, go to your device, open a search engine of your choice and put in a bolster lecture. And what you will see is a beautiful woodcut of what looks like a four-poster bed. So it's a bed with curtains around it. There's a husband and wife in bed. She is sort of railing against him, you know, complaining at him. There's a bedpan. There are even slippers. Uh, But what is extraordinary is that they've got blankets and, and sheets over them, but they are both dressed head to toe in nightwear. So what look like night shirts and then night caps. And she's putting her her hand on his head, presumably trying to wake him up. So this is a depi- the, probably one of the earliest depictions that we have of them wearing you know, fairly loose-fitting garments, sort of head to toe. The wife's shoulders are interestingly also covered with a, a decoratively edged what is known as a night rail, so a kind of shawl uh, that would often be made of, of of linen. And one of the things that medical writers are really concerned with is the need for cleanliness and fresh sheets, fresh textiles, not only clothes that are put on the bed, but also the kind of specialist garments that people are wearing. Now, as I said earlier on, There is some problem with the kinds of terminology that people wear. So the kinds of things that people would have worn to bed would be night gear, night shirts, shirts, shifts, smocks, night clothes. And sometimes these would also double as undergarments. So they'd be underwear or invisible clothing that you wouldn't that you wouldn't you would that wouldn't be seen. And these were the kinds of garments that medics were concerned with because they were the things that sort of soaked up the sort of bodily seepages and things like that that are connected to contaminants these shouldn't be mistaken for nightgowns and nightgowns as we'll see a little later on are actually garments that would have been worn in the evening and what they emphasize is domestic comfort so somebody actually being in their home, relaxing in the evening, the kind of thing that you might well wear, Sam, you know, coming home from a hard day's filming or, you know, reading and writing and all of those things. And the man in his castle puts on his nightgown, um, sort of the equivalent of a sort of smoking jacket when one feels. Yeah, I came across smoking jacket stuff in this description and actually pyjamas were often worn underneath a smoking jacket and you can't kind of t- take the two apart. Yeah. Nice. Uh, the other thing is nightcaps. Um, and nightcaps, again, this is difficult because nightcaps can be worn just in the evening, sort of around the house, but also would be worn to bed. Nightcaps, caps, night coifs for, for women, night cross cloths, uh, for example. And again, this is connected to it's connected to theories by medical practitioners, people like Felix Platter. Uh, Abdiah Cole and the famous Nicholas Culpepper, uh, he of the sort of herbal uh, fame, and they recommended that heads should neither be too warm nor too cold at night um, because they feared that, um, (laughs) get this, that um, excessive exposure to cold air, and I'm quoting here from Sasha's book, and North Wind, quote, may cause a great stupidity whilst (laughs) overheating generated harmful <laughs> vapours. And you'll love this because um, 
you know, there's this, there's this, there's this, this connection between harmful vapors and grey hair. So, ah. so there's, a, there's the, the idea is that on the one hand, that people would have kept their heads warm for fear of catching cold, and you know, and, and basically, if they were kept warm, there'd be no, no sort of hazard. But if they were overheat overheated so over warm um basically if you had a too too thick a hat on this would impede the escape of excess vapors from the head which in turn caused the hair to turn gray at an early age so you know one has to be very careful with these kinds of things and if you have a look through the kind of probate inventories that we that we have from the 17th century on you can see a whole range of night hats uh, that people would have worn all sorts of, you know, all sorts of, you know, varieties from things that are very simple to things that are actually beautifully um, embroidered. And there's a wonderful uh, example of a gentleman's nightcap in a lovely little collection or, on everyday life in Shakespeare's England, uh, which is at the uh, Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, have a look at that um, and it's a beautiful embroidered uh, nightcap it's a, a sort of cream uh, linen and then it's got this beautiful sort of gold uh, stitching around and then some very sort of ornate flowers but again as I said this this would be would be worn at night rather than necessarily while one was asleep. But basically it becomes a, the nightcap becomes a symbol for plebeian life. And and you can see this in various other plays. If you think of the play Arden of Faversham, which Shakespeare is associated with, there's a scene where um, uh, Arden of Faversham, uh, the sort of the his sort of rival for his wife's affections, turns up at the at the household. And Arden of Fabersham himself is described as wearing a nightgown. And what this shows is that actually, you know, that this is somebody who is very much at home and comfortable in his uh, domestic dwelling here. Um, but the final thing that I want to talk about is the is this arrival of um, in the 17th century. This is really when we get the development of garments specifically worn from in bed. Um, before that, it's very much uh, something that is connected to the royalty and aristocracy. You know, they occasionally have things that are specifically for wearing to bed. But once we get into the 17th century, there are many more things that would... Um, many more things... Uh, that were listed in inventories and one of the interesting things that one of the interesting ways in which we know what people would have worn to bed is actually when they are disturbed at night so for example the house is on fire and they have to go out of the house they don't have time to dress and they basically they go outside and are seen they are observed wearing the things that they went to bed with and quite often it is a you know they they went out uh, and you know they were in a, a shirt or a nightshirt or something like that so there we are sam the prehistory of the pajama yeah i like that idea it reminds me of um being at school and having fire alarms and everyone having to kind of pile outside in their pajamas um i came across a wonderful film called pilots in pajamas which i thought what, the, what on earth is this and it's uh it's brilliant it's it's one of the most 
uh, extraordinary things I've seen for some time. And it made me think about the relationship between um, film and prisoners of war. Um, so if you think it's very, it's actually very un unusual to see any film footage of prisoners of war from the Second World War, uh, but then becomes more common. And what I'm talking about here is a film that was made in 1968. And it was a miniseries about the war in Vietnam, and it was made for East German television. Uh, so sharing the, the communist interests of, of what was going on in uh, in in Vietnam with the Vietnamese. It was directed by state filmmakers um, and it's organised around a series of interviews with 10 American prisoners of war who were kept at the Hoalau prison, which is known as the Hanoi Hilton. It was a, a, a truly terrible place if you were, if you were an, an unlucky enough to be an American uh, pilot who'd been shot down. And this film uh, gives you an insight into the prison and insight into the lives of these Americans as well. It was only um, uh, became, it was only sort of became available to English speaking audiences in 2014 because the original, it was all dubbed into German. And I was just going to read you a bit of the transcript and um, hopefully this will inspire you to, to, to find it. It's on YouTube um, and it is, it is absolutely brilliant. Um, this is the authors, the, like the commentary which goes over the pre-titles. And what you're looking at are pictures of uh, planes crashing into the Vietnamese jungle. Vietnam. We have seen the attacks and their targets. We have seen the murderers in the sky and the victims on the ground. What is inside these American bomb droppers? What do the insides of their heads look like? We would like to ask them, but up there in their lofty heights they are unreachable for us. But now we are facing one another eye to eye with these bomb droppers from the USA for rockets, MiGs, ak, -ak and rifles brought them down to earth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten American air pirates who survived the crash of their planes. They appeared in front of the cameras and microphones of a film team from the German Democratic Republic who were the first such group in the world to be granted permission by the Council of Ministers of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam to extensively query the prisoners, to ask them in the name of millions the world over why. The prison camp commanders ascertained which pilots were prepared to speak and answer their questions. Now, uh, what's fascinating here is, of course, uh, it comes down to the pyjamas, but they are in their prison garb. and Some of them speak, some of them choose not to speak. Then the camera focuses on a man who's standing in the corner of a cell wearing very distinctive uh, pyjama clothing. This one here turned away as we came into his cell. He not only didn't want to be questioned, but also not filmed. Was he filled with pride or repentance? Did he refuse because of self-confidence or shame? We do not know. His prisoner's clothing, called pyjamas, was the only thing we could film. They then go on to interview these ten prisoners of war, and they ask them a, a variety of general questions, but the, you can see the sort of startling fear uh, in these soldiers' eyes. Um, and they also talk about uh, having uh, wives or sweethearts at home. It's, it's, and, and also um, their religion is very important to them. Um, it's really, really worth, uh, worth discovering 
on YouTube. So this is um, Pilots in Pyjamas from 1968. Fantastic stuff. And obviously it raises the question of um, uh, the history of what prisoners of war uh, were forced to wear. Um, it, it made me think of The Boy in the Stripe Pyjamas, um, that very famous mm. book which was turned into a film all to do with uh, life in um, in Auschwitz. And um, uh, obviously clothing in the Second World War prison of war camps is something that you could follow on from here. So opened up a, a huge, um, uh, a fascinating area of research, James, which I would like to do more of. Oh, talking of fascinating areas of research, I just want to end with a sort of little game uh, well, not a little game, but a little sort of little look at Samuel Pepys's diary and mm. references to nightgowns. Now, remember what I said that nightgowns aren't necessarily pajamas, but in some cases they are. It's it's it, it they are clothes that would have been worn in the evening that aren't necessarily day clothes that you would have worn when you're outside. It's interesting here because there are various sort of uses. Uh, of them, various references, and I've got a number that I want to go through that tell us sort of different things. So on Wednesday, the 20th of December, 1665, Pepys writes, and thence to Mrs Pennington, and had a supper from the King's Head for her, and there, mighty merry and free as I used to be with her, and at last, late, I did pray her to undress herself into her nightgown, that I may see how to have her picture drawn carelessly, for she is mighty proud of that conceit, and I would walk without in the street till she had done, so I did walk forth, and whether I made too many turns or no, in the dark, cold, frosty night between the two walls, up to the park gate, I know not. But she was gone to bed when I came again to the house upon pretence of leaving some papers there, which I did on purpose by her consent. So I away to home. So there's the there's this the idea that he is mar he's he's engaging with this married woman, um, and he's flirting with her, and he's obviously had a, some kind of relationship with her before. The fact that he is getting her to dress down into her nightgown is inside. There's some there are certain sort of sexual uh, overtones there. There's another example uh, here from Tuesday, the 1st of October, 1667. And this is a very different example because he describes here, All the morning, busy at the office, pleased mightily with my girl, that we have got to wait on my wife. At noon, died with Sir George Carteret and the rest of our officers at his house in Broad Street, they being there upon his accounts. After dinner took coach and to my wife who was gone before into the strand there to buy a nightgown where I found her in a shop and with her pretty girl and having brought it away home I thence to Sir George Carteret's again so again he's talking there about the the purchase of nightgowns so his, his wife sort of purchasing nightgowns and there are several examples in the diary where he purchases a nightgown for his wife as a as a gift so you can get it at shopping and where one might get this kind of um this kind of garment from on the 1st of january 1668 which is a wednesday he writes and took coach and home about nine or ten at night where not finding my wife come home i took the same coach again and leaving my watch behind me for fear of robbing i did go back and to Mrs. Pierce's, thinking they might not have broken up yet. But there I find my wife newly gone and not going out of the coach, spoke to Mr. Pierce in his nightgown in the street 
and so away back again home and there to supper with my wife and to talk about their dancing and doings at Mrs Pierce's today and so to bed. So the idea that his, that Mr Pierce, that he's conversing with in the street, is dressed in a nightgown. Now the final one I'm going to talk about is one of the most famous extracts from Pepys's diary because it is where he describes the Great Fire of London. And of course this is an extract from Sunday the 2nd of September 1666, the Lord's Day. Some of our maids sitting up late last night to get things ready against our feast today. Jane called us up about three in the morning to tell us of a great fire they saw in the city. So I rose and slipped on my nightgown and went to her window and thought it to be on the backside of Mark Lane the furthest. But being unused to such fires as followed, I thought it far enough off and so went to bed again and to sleep. About seven rose again to dress myself and there looked out at the window and saw the fire had not so much as it was and further off so to my closet to set things to rights after yesterday's cleaning and so it goes on. The important point to make here is that the nightgown is something that he is not wearing to bed but is something that he puts on so he presumably has close to his bedside presumably on a chair or some something close to hand and he is able to put it on to make himself decent when he walks into the room of a female maidservant to observe out of her window the great fire of London. So there we are Sam, pyjamas or the pre-pyjama or the the not nightwear nightgown um, (laughs) from the diary of Samuel Pepys. Wonderful, uh, love that. That was a really good, enjoyable, enjoyable episode, very much so. Um, guys, I hope you enjoyed it too. Um, we've got lots of wonderful stuff coming your way. If you want to find out more, do please follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history and the history of the sea more generally, do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can do so, should you wish. Uh, On Twitter, I am at James Daybell. The podcast is on Twitter at Unexpected Pod. We are also all over social media. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. So find us there and make friends. We have an all-singing, all-dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And we also have a Patreon page. So if you want to be a patron of histories of the unexpected and support the kinds of things that we are doing head over to patreon histories of the unexpected i think what we should do next sam is uh, we've done lying i feel we should do the the history of teflon things that don't <laughs> stick i thought you were gonna say truth teflon <laughs> i can't believe this is this is i'm not going to talk politics but oh my word what has the country come to (laughs) absolutely nonsense isn't it absolutely oh my word yes honor valor um you know fortitude (laughs) we could do all of these things absolutely i'm looking forward to it as well parties maybe yes Um, yes (laughs) that's it for now guys cheerio bye-bye bye
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.